It's been half a year since my computer died. At the time, I was devastated for a number of reasons. One, I wouldn't have anything to work on. As a lot of you guys know, I'm an aspiring rapper, producer, aspiring writer, aspiring otaku, and aspiring human being. So, I was down because I wouldn't be able to, um, to do anything, so... It's been half a year since then, since I, um, I transitioned slightly. I started making music on my iPad. And it's been actually pretty great. I was able to save most of my music when my computer was in its death throes. My music, my, uh, my beats, my instrumentals, so that I could at least could at least do something and what's been kind of wonderful about the fact that I'm uh, I'm on my iPad and I'm able to kind of do some things is the fact that I've really been able to apply uh, all of the um, beginner uh, producer skills and tricks that I learned to GarageBand for the iPad. So, it's been kind of cool actually being able to produce better music on the iPad than I was previously making. And I guess that just comes with experience. But half a year of applying what I've been working on for however long I've been making music, I don't think it's been that long. I think it's been like three years. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more. I'm not really sure. But I'm really about to step into the intermediate class. Whereas I saw myself as novice, then beginner level. Now I'm getting into those immediate, intermediate classes where it's blue belts, purple belts, higher or lower level brown belts. This is what I need to start doing to elevate my game and I'm very I'm very excited I actually because and I'm actually very very blessed my my cousin is helping me out in terms of with instruction what to do what to make um, in order for the setup and the uh, actual beat making process to go smoother and cleaner and for a couple of reasons. If, for those of you who are new or you just don't know, uh, my cousin is—he's a music producer and he makes—he um, makes a lot of really dope shit. Like he, he sings mostly and he raps, but he's not like—he's not like an R&B singer and he's not like a radio rapper. He makes dank, funky, wild, weirdo production, and it's amazing he's one of my favorite producers so I spent a lot of uh, a lot of my early early 20s and late 20s writing where 
for those of you who don't know, I am also a writer. I'm a, I've been trying to uh, become a published author for some time as well. And uh, I've had, I have books that I've completed and I have stories I've completed, but I couldn't quite find my genre, my niche, my, my, my voice. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling upon that as well. So now I'm kind of letting everything breathe and happen naturally. And I have some story ideas and I have some story concepts and I have some things that I've written that I've rushed to write. But I think, I think I really just have to lean into it naturally. You can't force something like that because it's very, it's a, it's a different animal. So you guys are kind of going to go along with me as I try and improve so that I can be a good producer. So, let me tell you kind of what I'm doing in terms of changing my setup. So previously, what I would do is, uh, on, my, on my big computer, I was using Mixcraft 5, which when I bought it, that was the latest version. I think they have 6, 6.1, and a few others, and I would kind of do it in a couple of ways because I didn't really have like a drum pad what I would do is I would either chop up drum samples or I would align the drum samples on the grid so that they gave me the patterns that I wanted and I I got pretty good at that but it was still missing kind of that swing and that human element to it so after doing that for so long and I had to figure that out too. I didn't I wasn't just out the gate doing that. I had to figure out exactly how I could get the sounds that I wanted because Mixcraft the um, the drums they don't hit very hard. And even when I got the sound that I wanted after EQing it and layering it and boosting it, it was still taking a while to kind of get it. I don't think that it was as adept at some of the making the sounds feel big and clear and kind of clean as uh, some of the other programs are, but that just may be my inexperience with it. So I would do it like that. Bear with me one second, y'all. I would do it like that and I would have like a lot of success in what I was doing and how I was crafting and creating, but But you could almost feel the amateur's nature of of the sounds. Like they wouldn't be mixed that well, or things would be muddy, or the drums wouldn't really hit, or there was a lot of space in the highs, so forth and so on. So now when I started doing stuff on the iPad, I was able to get a really lot of good sounds, some good resonance, and kind of started leaning into some things that I liked that sounded good. Um, I even had, I have a couple of EPs that I wanted to post up, which I need to kind of get out there. I have one from my old computer, one from the iPad. The one from the iPad is mixed and mastered. It's just not organized, and I need to save the files as, I think... I think GarageBand uses WAV files, I believe. 
Um, I think you can also save the files as something else, but whatever, maybe it's like a high quality, like AC3 or something like that. But anyway, so now, um, when I was describing what I, my, my, my work system, like before, with the iPad, like, uh, my girl has a, she's a MacBook Pro, but I don't want to, like, clutter her, her computer with a bunch of my shit, so I would mix, create the sound in iPad GarageBand, and then I would send it to myself, I'd drop it into GarageBand for the iPad, and then I'd master it in there, and that's kind of what my workflow looked like, and so my cousin was like, look, he was like, you shouldn't have to get off the iPad for um, the ideal workflow. He's told me what I should do is I should download a couple of different programs so that I can really kind of keep everything consistent, make the workflow cleaner, faster, etc. So he had me download Beatmaker Pro, and then I'm going to get iMachine and AudioBus. Apparently, AudioBus will let you bounce the sounds from one program to the other. So I'm assuming it'll let me bounce the drum patterns that I'm supposed to make in iMachine to Beatmaker Pro. And he sent me some tutorials that I'm going to start with that I'm going to play around with here in the middle of the day. But I'm just, I'm feeling very, very blessed and very, very fortunate to kind of continue with some help and some assistance because I'm looking forward to growth because that's the only thing that can really get you into the place that you want. It's the growth, it's the improvement. So shout out to Norvis Jr. For those of you listening live, that was some Norvis Jr. That's my cousin uh, off of his uh, beat tape, Hooks and Bridges. More like an EP really, because he does a little bit of the chorus, singings of some of the, uh, the hooks on there. And everything but he's just an ill producer he's real fire he's a great performer and really what he's helping me do is I want to be able to do beat sessions that's really what I want to be able to do I want to be able to go to these otaku parties throw my own otaku parties or what have you and just do beat sessions mixes things in the corner where uh, we're listening to songs that people recognize and songs that people don't know and we're coming up with some beautiful, fantastic music. Um, but I want you guys to check out him and um, if he ever has time, one day I'll get him, I'll see about getting him on the podcast. He's a busy fat, he's a busy, easy, busy fellow. He was um, rolling through Dallas, Austin, but now I think he's about to do a show in New York. Like he's on that underground indie scene and he's on the bubble. He's very ahead of the curve when it comes to a lot of the production he makes. So, you know, shout out to him. I want you guys to do me a favor too, if you get some time, just go listen to some of his uh, music. Uh, You can even go to YouTube, type in Norvis Jr. and you'll see some music videos if you prefer a little bit of the visual. But, yeah, that's that that's that's my cousin. That's actually my little cousin whom I'm about 4 years older than him. About that, 3 or 4 years older than him and um he started producing way sooner than I did and that was his his guiding light, you know. I was over here doing the writing thing 
and I was just writing, 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 writing. So I, but I always had an inkling. I was like, man, I, I wanted to make beats too. And he's like, well, you got to get a mini controller, blah, 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 blah. And eventually I did. And I started kind of like doing a couple of things and I couldn't stop was when I realized, okay, I need to be doing this too. So, you know, he's just a great guy. I love him a lot. He's one of those guys that people really like and um, he's easy to love, easy to respect. So uh, shout out to Norvis Jr. as you guys know him. Now, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited to, to be able to share this aspect of my life too because I know, I know that it's kind of rough being on your own when you're doing stuff like this and um, people are positive and there are some great places that you can go get some of that positivity like on Reddit my favorite form or one of my favorite forms on there is the making hip hop form everyone on there is exceedingly positive and knowledgeable but sometimes Sometimes it's, you, you don't, sometimes you don't feel like being one, uh, one in a sea of many. Sometimes you want to be one of one. Sometimes you want to be a unique. And I, I, I feel that. So I'm hoping that by me posting some of this stuff, you can feel unique, but you can feel like you're going on this journey with, with, with someone else at the same time, where as I level up and improve maybe we can kind of do some stuff at the same time you guys can level up and improve and hopefully we can kind of get where we want to be because that's kind of the whole point of everything you know it's all imagination the flower you know finding the truth of your imagination and why theirs is not necessarily applicable to your life like you have to design your own structure you have to find love all the time and every day and that's that's just the reality so i hope everybody is having just you're just filled with emotion and joy and satisfaction and everything like that because that's kind of the point so i'm i'm very thrilled to do some of this stuff and when i get some on uh, in a way I'll, I'll probably play some of my beats but like that's way later. Right now, I just want to talk about uh, hip-hop. I want to talk about otaku stuff. I want to talk about video games so bad. So bad. I cannot wait. I love you guys. See you very soon. What up, what up? I'm Zid Raw. Z-I-D-R-A-W. I hope everybody's doing great. This is Otaku Beef. Uh, things are going pretty good. I'm pretty happy that the channel is kind of up and running. We're getting things started. Things are f being a little bit more fluid. I'm starting to get a little bit more purchase and in how I find my footing. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun. Everything is so easy and simplistic and straightforward. The ease of being able to put something on this platform and having it instantly be uploaded into the various locations of where podcasts can go the the value in that is crazy high especially if if you guys have ever tried to 
set up a podcast before like I have. Um, I used to have a podcast about writing like in 2011 and the difficulty in getting a host server when you don't have tons of money and being able to maintain it. And then when you need to switch servers, difficulty of canceling, it's not that it was hard, but it was tedious, tough to keep track of. And just something like this, it's just cool. Cause I was doing like that stuff too. Like, Oh, I'm going to put some music under my podcast. Kind of like how Kevin Smith's early podcast used to be, or how a lot of the, uh, the popular ones are now. The, the flexibility with this one is just, it's just killer to me. So I'm just fortunate that I can even use something like this, that it's given me the opportunity that I can, I can talk to you guys all the time and you're just going to have to deal with it, you know, or you can turn me off, you know, (laughs) whatever. So I got another random topic because I'm a random dude and I was thinking about Harry Potter. So Let's just say if you haven't read the Harry Potter series or watched the movies and we'll say if you haven't seen or know the premise of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. I'm just going to talk all things Harry Potter. So if you don't want to be spoiled on them, if you're very, very new to the series and you don't want to know anything, go ahead and skip a few segments until you get to a different topic because I really want to kind of get into a couple of things. Now, what interests me about this type of topic is the sense of revisiting a popular world where recently I was reading the the Boruto manga, the first like small 10 chapters, which really are like a rehash of certain parts of Naruto and those chapters aren't particularly satisfying or memorable because for reasons I'm about to really dive into there's nothing novel about them the novelty is just hey this is the legacy these are these characters but the fights the actual weight of the consequences, I don't believe anything bad can happen. I don't believe that something is going to really go wrong at this point because we just went through this whole series of getting Naruto to the point where he is the the uber ninja. That was the point of Naruto. Once he becomes Hokage and achieves his dream, the story, his story is basically over. Now, it's pretty cool seeing him and Sasuke and Sakura show up, but for us to really buy into the Boruto series, we got to buy into the character of Boruto. And I was sitting at home or no, I think I was at the gym. I was at the gym and I was trying to figure out why is it that I could connect so well to Boruto, but I'm not really connecting or to Naruto, but I'm not really connecting to Boruto. And it's because the mystery is gone and a new one hasn't been presented. A compelling one, one that allows the mystery to take its time. And don't worry, I'm going to relate this back to Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts very soon. Ah. So, 
let's continue. There is a certain structure to very, very basic structure of storytelling that is needed in order for the reader to be initially pulled in and for them to be eventually have reader retention or viewer retention or listener retention if you're doing an audiobook. Now, it's basically broken down into three parts, but depending on the type of story, the sections are going to be different lengths. But typically, it's shock, intrigue, myth, mystery. The shock is the shortest part. It's the attention grabber. The intrigue is going to then inform us, well, now that we have your attention, your attention, we're going to tell you some important pieces and about the locations, about what's going on. And then now that you have the locations and the setting and that you're familiarized, you're intrigued, right? Now we can start unraveling the deeper mystery of what's going on. And that is the basic structure of every single story. And this isn't a, um, a format that anybody else really talks about. Everyone kind of has their own version. It's not really anything new. That's just kind of how I describe it. Because it really helps if you want to know why is my story not working? Well, which part are you in? Which part should you be in? Too many people start their stories with intrigue. I don't care if I'm not enthralled. That's why you have to shock the viewer immediately with something they haven't seen before, something cool, something wild, something interesting, something tantalizing, something titillating. And then you draw them in. Now, that's why at the beginning of Harry Potter, we don't start with Harry Potter on number four, Privet Drive. We're met with the people that surround him. We're met with the boring, mundane world crashing with the mystery world. We're met with Uncle Vernon minding his own business and strange things are happening to him. It's crazy stuff. Owls. Something's going on. Something wild. Something otherworldly. And next thing you know, there's a mysterious cat and then there's a big wizard. There's a giant. There's something. Someone's talking about a war, about deaths. They're shocking my system. Then in the next chapter... Harry Potter lived under the stairs. His aunt and uncle were mean. He didn't have good stuff. Like, we're learning about the character. But they had to shock me first, or I wouldn't care. In Game of Thrones, it doesn't start with the Starks. You may not remember. Now, you probably do if you watch the show. But it starts with three rangers. Or, I should say... Yeah, there are rangers. Three rangers are going beyond the wall... And they're trying to figure out what's going on with mysterious disappearance. And then uh, ice monsters. What is that? 
I can't remember the guy's name, but from Writing Excuses, he calls us the Ice Monster chapter, which is basically the shock. Too many people write prologues, they don't write shock. After that, you can tell us who they are. Who are the Starks? Who are the Lannisters? Because now I want to know. Because I feel a kind of way because of the shock. And that lets us, once we know who they are, once we know the players, now we can dive into the mystery. Hey, something's going on. Harry Potter, hey, I don't know what's going on. I think Snape is evil. There's a mystery there. What does he want? What's going on? Oh no, it's the Philosopher's Stone. The mystery unravels. But if we don't know who Harry, Ron, if we don't know what the Wizarding World is, and if you notice, if you go back and read it, the mystery starts at about the halfway point, so it can take us to the new ending point of the book. Uh, as you can tell, I'm getting very worked up about this. I love this topic. Um, I'm a crazy Harry Potter fan. If you don't know, I'm going to have to take a picture and post it. I'm going to post it on my Instagram tonight. I'm going to take a picture of my bookshelf showing all of my Harry Potter books. I mean, all of them, uh, including the ones that you're not really supposed to own. I'm going to post that picture and I'm going to just put it as HP fan. But so that's shock. That's your intrigue. And then that's how you lead into mystery. Because the mystery is the story story. The intrigue is just the world building, really, and the character design. And the shock is the attention grabber. Now, in a case like Boruto, there's no real way to shock the audience. Now, what they did was they started it with him in the future, everything is kind of going to shit, saying the ninjas are over, he's saying I'm still a real ninja, that's how it opens. It's kind of a shock, but it doesn't hit me that hard, probably because I spent so long with Naruto, and I've spent so long with the characters, that the destruction of Konoha almost is like, eh, I don't know if I can watch it again. There's a little fatigue there. And then beyond that, I don't get why the world, the ninja world, hasn't learned any lessons based on all the shit that Naruto went through. So I'm a little more put off than intrigued, but, or shocked, really. It's more like, ugh. And then beyond that, the intrigue, they're getting to know the characters and everything, but we're not getting to know the characters as their their unique selves we're not getting to know the world we already know the world there's nothing really there for us to intrigue us there's no like section of oh did you know this about ninja samurais or oh did you know this about uh there's another village hidden village of sand and oh did you know that there's oh here comes these unique ninja it's it's hard because everything that makes naruto unique has already been introduced in the previous series. So there's the continue there's the there's the the challenge of continuation and I almost feel as if when you start with uh, something sequelized you shouldn't even get into intrigue you could just jump right into mystery because 
it's not starting over. You don't have to take the time to build up and explore and explain and all this stuff. But they're still doing that, but it's hard for me to really sink in. And I shouldn't have to try hard, it should be natural. I think this is why. Now, it's funny because when Masashi Kishimoto, who is the mangaka of Naruto, and if you don't know, his twin brother writes Oparts Hunter, as they call it in the US, but 666 Satan, as it's called in Japan, they're twins. Their drawing style is very similar. Naruto really blew up. Oparts Hunter was pretty good. And his next manga was not good at all. But when he was creating the, the world of Naruto, he was originally said he was going to make it about dark wizards. But then he heard o- overseas about some story about wizards and a kid going to wizard school. And so he was like, shoot, all right, I guess I'll make them ninjas. So I like the parallel because the feel behind the stories is similar. And even comparing character archetypes. There's a lot of similarity there. When you think Orochimaru, you think Lord Voldemort. When you think the Jonins who are looking after the shonen, the team leads, you think about the heads of houses. Kakashi McGonagall. When you think about the young groups of people working in threes, two boys, one girl, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Naruto, Sasuke, Sakura. There's a lot of parallels there. So there is a lot that the both stories did right. They did the shock, mystery, and intrigue in the right order. So what's this have to do with continuation of Naruto? <laughs> all right, yo, so... What's the point of all this? Why go that deep? And I actually meant to end that last part on what does this have to do with Harry Potter, not Naruto. So that was a fuck up. So the reason why I felt Fantastic Beasts and where to find them failed is the same reason why I feel that Boruto is struggling. Now, Boruto is popular not because people are engaged in the new story is popular because it's related to, to Naruto. Same thing with Fantista, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. That was a movie. See, that's the best review I can give it. That was a movie that was not that engaging and not that interesting, if we're being honest. It was a segment of the books which was pretty fascinating and it told it leads towards one of the most hushed discussed uh segments uh in wizarding in the wizarding world where things were not quite so good when the world was dark and the end was around the corner and there was tension constant tension and this was this was the this was the lead up no, this was the lead up or during, I think it's during, the dark wizard struggle between Dumbledore and Grindelwald, which was the dark time right before Voldemort came in. J.K. Rowling has 
on record as describing that she likes the idea that a wizarding war was occurring around the same time that a war was occurring in the muggle world, i.e. World War II. And Dumbledore, not Dumbledore, Grindelwald and the, I can't remember what he called his followers, but they were like the Nazis. He was like Hitler, the might makes right. Everything uh, for the, 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 the many should sacrifice for the few and the few and chosen very uh, supremacist talks and supremacist attitudes. So there's a lot that can be done with this type of world. Now, that's the sense that she gave us in the books. The way Dumbledore describes it, the way people say it, was that there were sweet moments, but there was a lot of terror and a lot of fear from Grindelwald and his followers. Now, it's really hammer home in the last book, in the Deathly Hollows. And that's kind of what I was expecting. But I mean, Harry Potter is much more lighthearted. It's lighthearted overtones and darker undertones, to borrow a phrase from Mike Seatown. That's kind of the sense of the story. There's humor, there's lightness on top. Now, having that same type of lightness in the spiritual successor doesn't really work as much because of the ages of the characters. It comes across as a little bit silly. It comes across as a little bit disingenuous and almost pandering, but not on purpose, just a little bit. And it keeps giving and doling out intrigue in a a way to where I'm not fascinated enough by the intrigue because I, I already know about magic. I know there's weird and crazy stuff around the corner. Whenever this happens and you're sequelizing something, you really have to start with mystery from the jump. Because we know the world. We know the, the, the associative characters and nostalgia can really only take you so far. So I am really hoping that the mystery is more on the forefront going forward. It's the same reason why Batman, the Dark Knight, works and other sequels do not because from the jump what do we hear guys are robbing a bank did you hear about this guy they call the joker yeah here he wears clown makeup it's crazy mystery so i'm gonna make this the last piece on the whole harry potter thing because i'm walking a little bit my shoes are untied I take a leak. I'm scrambling to get from one place to the next, as, you know, a wonderful, fantastic gentleman should every day. So anyway, when I think about how stories are supposed to be structured versus how Fantastic Beasts actually structures its stories, it's easy to see where it's kind of like losing the audience. The characters aren't really matching the setting. What I mean is the setting feels a bit more serious than the characters are allowed to be. 
And I think that that's because they're trying to either relate to a really young audience and they're trying to give you the same feeling of discovery that you had when reading the original Harry Potter series. But I think that's, a pro that's, that's not the way to go. The people whom are going to watch this movie are the ones who have already grown up reading the previous books. They're already involved. They're already into kind of what's going on. And I think that's really what they should focus on. They should focus on the maturity level of their retained readers and their retained audiences and play off of their already committed knowledge to the world as it exists. So because they already have like a basic understanding of, yeah, magic exists and here's how it works and these are the characters and blah, blah, blah. Align that with their maturity level is far greater and they can handle more serious subjects. You can start it with the seriousness of a book six of a half-blood prince. Start it there, push it further. But Rufus, not Rufus Scrimgeour, um, Newt Scrimander, he's a very unlikable character because there's not really much that's interesting about him. He's supposed to be this great uh, individual who's great with beasts. I don't really get why. I just get that he really loves them and because he loves them, they like him too, sort of. And him showing the different ways that he wrangles the beast, it wasn't working for me. It didn't quite solidify as expertise so much as just him kind of doing something and saying a couple of interesting things. I didn't get the sense of effectiveness and precision of discovery that I got with the original series. And that's the problem. That's not what a sequel is supposed to do. The sequel is supposed to expand it into a different territory than was previously allotted. It's not supposed to try and revisit and rehash the same familiar territories. That's where they kind of screwed up. So because of that, there's a big strong sense of redundancy and it's an empty redundancy at that because it's exploring information that the viewing audience already knows. Saying, oh, there's this wide mystery of uh, magic within the United States is almost pointless because if you're telling us it's the same locate, the same individuals and the same factions, just in a different, a different location, we're almost expecting it. So to play it as a surprise is, it seems a little short-sighted or it seems a little tone deaf. So that is kind of the problem with uh, Fantastic Beasts. Boruto has that a little bit, but not to that extent, but it has a little bit of those same issues of starting the story at zero when really it should be starting at about seven and going beyond that and expanding that. So that is what basically my feelings on that subject. And I, I love the fact that you guys really let me kind of dig in and expand. And I appreciate you guys more than you know. The fact that one, two, three, four, maybe even five people 
give us a glance or give us a listen to means all the world to me. I'm Zid Raw on most channels, or I'm the Zid Raw, or I'm Zid Raw the Wizard. You guys can find me. Love, peace, serenity, otaku beef. So, they're making a sequel to Fully Cooley. Now, Fully Cooley, which is how it's pronounced, is actually written as F L C L, which I guess is the, the shorthand for the show. Uh, it's an anime from the 90s, around the same time as Evangelion and other things around that time that were really popular. Now, it's a, I want to say it's the same company that made Tingen Topa and that made Kill la Kill. I think it's Gainix, whom had this tradition of doing something really powerful and then something a little bit slapsticky, almost like back to back, which is kind of what they did recently with uh, Tengen Topa and then with Kill the Kill, right? So this one kind of came out around the same time and it was very abstract and a lot of the information in that particular show was pretty obscure. Like, there were outlandish and abstract concepts that almost played into this absurd type of humor, which isn't really seen and duplicated too often. Uh, another show that was very absurd was Excel Saga, where everything was silly, and so the humor was a little bit gaggy, a little bit slapsticky. This one, the humor is not so much slapsticky as it is just kind of like absurd, absurd in nature. There's a character whom he has like a bump on his forehead and from it, the superhero or whatever will spring forth and kind of fight his battles. The the superhero mecha thing guy with a TV for a head. So, it was wildly popular and especially popular for people that just like non sequiturs and absurd humor and really abstract concepts. So, it faded away, went down to the annals as one of the great anime moments of the 90s. Well, they're bringing it back. And I don't really know how I feel about that because I don't know if they're bringing it back because they have a story to tell or because they're trying to cash in on a nostalgia thing. And nostalgia, it's a hell of a drug. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it because there's a lot of really positive things of people cashing in on nostalgia that's turned out very wonderfully. Like, video games in particular are perfect vehicles for nostalgia because you want to play the next chapter. You want to feel that environment and get those sensibilities once more. So when a new Zelda comes out, you want it to have a lot of the stuff and the feel and the soundtrack that you felt from previous titles. 
that's what's so cool about video games with books and movies and other things like that you kind of want it to feel new and have a a little bit of a sense of this is something that you you haven't seen before so so in the case of Furikuri they're saying it's coming soon and I keep seeing advertisements I don't know what the motivation behind the creator is because if they're trying to really expand upon the universe and tell something that's going to kind of enrich the story of the universe and of the characters it's positive if they're just going to do something to just do something it's clearly not and that's really always my qualm with these type of moves so we'll have to wait and see because obviously things can be really terrible but you can get surprised and someone may do something that really ends up delighting you and that will be just as good hey it's zid raw z-i-d-r-a-w if you want to find me on instagram it's zid raw the wizard always putting up stupid nonsense having a good time enjoying myself thoroughly then some days not enjoying myself having a bad time but still putting up stupid nonsense check me out so in thinking about the whole Furi Kuri show and how they're sequelizing something that has been gone for quite some time it brings up a couple of questions who's the target audience when you sequelize something right you do it or when you add another season you do it because of the popularity of the show and you know there's going to be viewers you've got good feedback you got a lot of really positive impressions and things and views and people saying all kinds of amazing things about your show so you know hey we got to make a sequel because or we got to make a new season because it's time People are going to want to see it. People are going to like it. So, you do what you got to do. In the case of a very old show, the people who watched it are they're grown. They're they don't have the rosy-colored glasses as much a lot of the times. Uh, well, okay, let me put it like this. Rose-colored glasses have a don't have much success in regards to they don't really carry over between projects like you would think they they do. What it does is it makes the barrier for entry a lot higher. By comparison, things end up being considered to be much worse than they actually are. So, the reason why a lot of people hated Final Fantasy 8 is because of how much they loved Final Fantasy 7. The reason that they hated the draw system is because they liked the more simplistic system of Final Fantasy 7. The reason that people hated Final Fantasy 9 is because they loved the battle system of Final Fantasy 10, not 9, the battle system of Final Fantasy 
12 is because they love the battle system of Final Fantasy X. The reason that they love the battle system of Final Fantasy IX is because they loved the battle system of Final Fantasy IV. Nostalgia, if it's tricky, where you almost have to give somebody a one-to-one near exact exact duplicate of what they consider to be nostalgic in order for it to be conceived as, yeah, this is a positive, this is a win. Because if you don't, criticisms. And consider this, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. It's so similar to Star Wars, the original Star Wars, in terms of plot points, setting, uh, character development. The, the the skeleton is very similar. Look at how popular it was because they're competing with a child's memory. When I look back at my times of watching Star Wars when my dad had recorded them, it was really cool. Back in the day, what they would do is they showed like certain movies on television without commercials. So my dad, being the savvy individual he was, recorded the episode uh, four, five, and six. Um, we had them on VHS and they were amazing. So, I would watch those back to back to back to back, and I would go outside, i put on roller skates, and I would enact the battles that were happening, the trench battles, go, skating down like really like high hills and stuff, and I had, a, I had an amazing time. And that, now, because I had no worries, I had no bills, everything was great, Star Wars was an amplification of that time. That's what the film was competing with. Childhood joy. You know what? Let's kind of keep on this topic about nostalgia because it's one that's pretty fascinating because it's one that everybody is kind of aware of and yet we still react based on nostalgia. We all know that that things in the past are... We know intellectually that they weren't better than the present. The 90s weren't better than 2017. 2004 wasn't better than 2015. It just wasn't. The improvements, the advancements in technology... The iPhone's only been around for about 10 years. There were no smartphones. There was no awareness of as many different cultures and creeds. We were socially behind. People didn't have as much openness when it came to being who they 100% were. Things weren't better. The graphics weren't as good. The gameplay wasn't as good. The The N64 controller sucks for shooters. It sucks. When I tried to complain, when I tried to play GoldenEye after playing Halo and Halo 2, I was like, this is terrible. Can't aim. You have to turn your whole body to shoot. But because I was a kid when Goldeneye came out, and a lot of my friends were kids, Goldeneye is better than Halo. It's not. Now, <clears throat> better is kind of, kind of 
an objective term, which is hard to apply to subjective material. But the really the real thing that people are saying when they say better is they're saying it's more satisfying or it is my favorite. That's really what people should be saying. So nostalgia in general is interesting because we treat it like we treat the past feelings as if they're facts, as if Darth Vader is better than whomever is the new bad guy. But maybe he's just what was satisfying to us. But if you take like a 10 year old right now, he may say Kylo Ren is the best bad guy. That's what he may say. You just don't know. But we, at the same time, right? We know, we know this intellectually. We know it. I'll say this shit. Some people will disagree. A lot of people will be like, yeah, you know, reluctant, reluctant agree or whatever. It, but we still react to nostalgia. If I'm on Instagram and I'm scrolling through and there's a guy and he posts, hey, I just got this new t-shirt and it's Mario and Luigi like leaning against uh, a Hummer. You better believe I'm hitting like because nostalgia plays to that longing in my brain. Those good times, the fun, the the cheer and the joy and the happiness of, 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 of a young Zid Raw. So it's pretty crazy how nostalgia is both a positive and a negative, how it's both active and reactive and passive. And companies are smartly, smartly playing upon that nostalgia because they know it works. They are, after all, business and they have to make money. And there's a good probability or possibility that if people get that tingle of nostalgia, that's kind of like healing that sense of longing that they have for days long past, then there's a good chance that they're going to hit buy, that they're going to share, that they're going to show, and then they're going to get good word of mouth and sell more product. So I understand, but now let's think about it. Not so much business-like, but let's think about it artistically. Is it good for the art? Is it good for the art? I don't know. Is a sequel to Neon Genesis good for the art? Is a sequel, are these sequels to Dragon Ball Z good for the art? I don't know. It's like we treat it as good when something good happens, but when something bad happens, we treat it as bad. I don't think anyone really knows. And that's kind of the beauty of it. I'm in a particularly good mood today, so I'm feeling very long-winded. As you know, I'm Zid Raw. Otaku Beef is the channel. Love everybody. So I was thinking about that nostalgia thing just a little bit further, and nostalgia is it's a lot of times it's used to kind of pull people in. And smartly enough, if it's used in the appropriate way, you can actually give somebody something of a lot of value. There is a lot of value in joy. There's a lot of value in delight 
in repeat experiences and positive feelings and sensations that have previously occurred. So I was thinking about how do I feel when something just hits me in that nostalgic vibration. I mean, one of the best methods, or not methods, one of the best telltale signs of positive nostalgia is, or one of the best vehicles for nostalgia, I got there finally, one of the best vehicles is through music, because as it's playing the song, that was the background of a lot of the games that you played, the movies you watched, so forth and so on, you're not grading the music on its technical prowess and stuff, though the music has to be good, or not even good, it can just be catchy, memorable. The music can transport you back to the visual location, locations that you had while playing the game. That's what's so beautiful about it. When used right, there's value in nostalgia. And I think that a lot of the qualms that people have about how, oh man, they're making another sequel, they're, they're drudging up some old property and trying to make, they don't really, that's not really what they're, what they're mad about. They're not mad that the property is old. They're mad that it's done poorly, that that's the only, they're only hoping that people are gonna like it and listen to it because it's related to that property. And I think that's what people feel. They feel that sense of betrayal because, because they're, they, they feel as if the creators and the people that are doing this are basically calling them stupid. Like, they're not gonna know the difference. Just put Pac-Man in there. Like, Playing it for, for playing it straight, like they're gonna love it just because they love the old one and not really caring about the quality of the product is what people are mad about. You gotta have, you gotta give the value of the potential product. The potential product needs to be of a high quality. Otherwise, you're just. Otherwise, you're just blowing in the wind. You're not really giving something to people that they can actually use and they actually love and appreciate. And I think that that's a problem with a lot of the uh, film studios. But I said it once, I'll say it again. I don't think anyone does nostalgia better than video games. Actually, I don't think I've ever said that. I don't think anyone does nostalgia better than video games. I just don't. Because... Nintendo is the king. They come out with this stuff that we remember, but then they give you something that's quality too. They're able to present new ideas better because of the nostalgia factor. Like they can try some stuff. The Bungie team tried it a little bit with Halo Wars, which is an RTS where they were like, we can get more people playing a couple, uh, a little bit of a strategy game who never played one because this is a Halo title. We just have to make sure it's good. Paper Mario, Dr. Mario, they're playing on the nostalgia of Mario. 
rather than just solely depending on the quality of the product. And if it's good, that's all you really need right there. And that's the key, if it's good. But I think video games kind of do it the best, easily. When I was 14, 13, 13, 14 years old, I related most to Ryoga Hibiki from Ranma One Half. That's one of my favorite anime of all time. Ryoga is my favorite character from the show. And he's probably the character that most people relate to the most. Very strong, very capable, but very self-doubting, very isolated, and very lost, both literally and metaphorically. I don't know what it is about character association that really lets us look favorably. I mean, obviously, we associate things that are most resembling ourselves as positive, and the things not even less resembling ourselves, but that we deem to be harsh to how we view the world. We, we label that as, as negative, like studies have shown that people tend to like the letter, the first letter of their name. Like if they see that first letter in like an alphabet or like written on like some chart and they say pick a letter, they're going to like the letter that's like their first name simply because it's associated with them. Because even subconsciously, even if you don't out, out loud, you tend to tend to like yourself and so when you see certain characters on screen and you're like holy this character really resembles me in a lot of ways and it's so fucking crazy because it's like Ryoga is one of the coolest characters simply because of how capable he was. He had this thing where he was like relentlessly strong, relentlessly powerful. And yet, even with all that strength and with all that capability, it didn't matter when it came to getting the job done because Ranma was just a little bit cleverer than him. Even during like one of the greatest episodes ever, the Ryoga Moose Alliance, he and Moose together combined with their powers combined they 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 couldn't do shit against Ranma they just they tried they did their best and in doing so they failed so I just thought that I'd share a little bit of that because it's it's interesting how I can tell I can tell you kind of who I am and this is who I am this is what I'm about but I almost feel like if I tell you, if I point you to, towards characters that I relate to, it's like I can show you who I am. Ryoga Hibiki. Sherlock from Sherlock. Squall Leon, Lion, Lionheart, or Lionheart, that's easier to say. Off the top of my head, those are characters that act and behave similarly to how I behave. Capable, strong, yet lost in their own heads, self-doubt, 
And I don't know if that's just the nature of my Myers-Briggs type or if it's just the nature of who I am, but the awareness of understanding why I'm like this or that I'm like this kind of lets me stay. I shouldn't expect myself to be anything else. Like I can be okay being who I am and being upfront with someone and saying, look, this is how I come to the party. This is how I show up. And that's totally cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, knowing my, not weaknesses, but knowing areas that are invasive to others, disappearing, not texting back right away. It's not that it's something that how I, it's not like my weaknesses, like I'm not good at math. I don't need to work on that. I need to work on associating with others and being good with society because we're all important and we're all connected. So that long, that was my long-winded way of saying that Ryoga Hibiki is my favorite character or Hibiki Ryoga if you watch the subtitled version. So what games are on your to playlist? I was thinking about this it's so funny too because I was just thinking the more I talk about video game stuff and how it's on my mind I was like this is turning almost to like a straight video game podcast but it's not really I keep it eclectic and everything but for real though what games have you heard great things about but you've always wanted to play but you just never have I'm sure we all have lists like that I have a list like that there's so many games from PS4 that I just have. I have like a list. Games that, okay, I can't really get a PS4 now. I don't really have the time. But the second I get one, I'm going to be playing these video games because when I saw the trailers or I watched some behind-the-scenes footage of the video or whatever, it just tugged at all the right strings for someone like me. The RPG-ness, the adventure, the whatever. These are games that I have to play. So, I wanted to give you guys some games that I really enjoyed. That I think that a lot of people probably missed or they heard a lot about, but maybe they just didn't play it for whatever reason. So, here's just a couple. Breath of Fire Breath of Fire is a series that it was a Capcom RPG turn based very classic you know classically trained RPG where you have the main character named Ryu which means dragon who has the ability to turn into you guessed it dragons what's so cool about the Breath of Fire series is that Other RPGs, what they'll do is they will create a new scenario with new characters, new locations, but we'll have some of the same feelings and the same thematic effects that their previous games had. What Breath of Fire did, which was so freaking awesome, is the characters would get re- the same characters would get reimagined and put into the game. So you have the main character, Ryu, 
who is a typical anime character. He's got blue hair. You'll see different iterations of him. You've got the blonde girl who uses magic. You see different iterations of her. And you have the tiger man who, I guess he uses stronger weapons like two-handers or just big clubs and stuff. You see different iterations of him. One of my favorite games from that series is Breath of Fire 4 for the original PlayStation. It's just so... It's so well-crafted, and it's so intricate and interesting, and at the same time, a challenge. Now, before there was uh, min-maxing, getting the best gear, it was really just preparation and strategy and enjoying kind of the flow of the story. That's what a good RPG is about. That's why I never really got into MMOs because MMOs aren't really about adventure and storytelling. They're about stats, optimization. Like I may as well be driving a car. What I love about a lot of JRPGs and Western RPGs, single player games, is that it really is about the story. The story pulls me in and keeps me there. So Breath of Fire 4, has a marvelous story, but really just the, the music, the aesthetics, the style, it's very anime, 2D anime, artistic. The music really suits the world. It has a very ethereal, almost Arabian uh, type, of, type of melodies and stuff played and layered throughout the, uh, the video game. It's just one of my favorites. It's one of the best. And it's interesting because I had recommended this game a couple of times and on both instances the person I was talking to were like oh it's okay I think Breath of Fire 3 is better because and they just explained some stuff but remember what I was saying earlier they're only saying that because they played Breath of Fire 3 first it's a nostalgia man but I recommend this one this one is really good don't forget I'm Zidraw Z-I-D-R-A-W be sure to find me on Instagram at ZidRawTheWizard. Find me on Twitter at TheZidRaw on those stations and on Snapchat as ZidRaw. I'm always talking about the same stuff on there as I am on here. We're talking anime, we're talking video games, we're talking rhymes, beats, otaku stuff. I haven't really talked too much about hip-hop. I might do some freestyles in the future. Do like a five-minute freestyle session or something like that. But for now, I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. I love everybody. I hope you guys are having a great day. I hope you have a great tomorrow. Find your love, peace, and serenity. And share that with others so they can find their peace, their serenity, their happiness. I love everybody. I hope you guys are having a great day. And like always, otaku beef.